What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, animal abuse, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Vanessa V. was first heard on Season 2 of the podcast Unraveled the Stalker's Web and via Discovery's documentary of the same title in 2021. However, her journey as a stalking victim started nearly two decades before her media-based advocacy journey began. Over those two decades, Vanessa experienced escalating, cyclical cyberstalking that affected all facets of her life. Still, Vanessa's tenacity and strength shines through as she continues to reinvent herself amidst all that comes next in her battle to be recognized and to receive justice. My name is Vanessa. I was on season two of Unraveled Stalker's Web. I'm an artist, a creative doodle in general. I'm originally from Texas, but now live out of state. My biological father gave my sister and I away for adoption to our stepdad when I was 11 and totally started a new family. My biological father, when the stepdaughter and adoption happened, he just kind of disappeared and gave us away because his father had died and wouldn't fund a child custody suit. So I lost my grandpa and then I lost my dad. Learning that one of your parents can just disappear from your life is extremely traumatizing. I don't know what's normal. My mother, I cut her off in my early 20s and tried to get to know my biological father a big clue should have been when I first started talking to him. I told him I wanted to forgive him for everything that happened in my childhood and process some of what I had been through. He told me that he did not need my forgiveness. He had Jesus Christ. It's hard because there's a part of you that has to mourn for the fact that you'll never have that love and support you were supposed to from that person. It's hard because it's both your relative that's supposed to love you and your abuser. My first husband was a diagnosed psychopath who hid that diagnosis from me until after we were married. I actually dropped out of college to get away from my mother and be with him and then return to college. I spent a lot of my early 20s at a fairly well-known goth bar in Dallas alternative music and lifestyle groups. I never fit in with the, quote, normies. That had become where I got a sense of security and I got a sense of belonging. 
that is also what Jason is connected into and part of what he feeds on. He made that unsafe for a lot of us a couple of years into working to pursue my passion, which is art. That's around the time I first encountered Jason. And when this started, I was using dial-up, AOL, Yahoo Messenger. I had a MySpace. That's how long ago. In 2004, I was using a platform called LiveJournal. I would describe it a lot like WordPress, but with social interaction features. It's really very heavy on the blogging. This was when blogging was very new and very popular. There was a gentleman I was following. I didn't really love him, but he posted interesting content. I kind of thought he was a little bit of a jerk. And somebody made a comment that I thought was funny about him in his blog's comment section. I responded laughing at it, just like, ha ha. And that person added me and started talking to me and immediately sent me porn and immediately offered to send me a whole bunch of obscure religious textbooks through the mail. I stupidly said yes to this. I was living in Dallas, Texas at this point. He was living in Austin, Texas. In most states, this would not be this far apart. Texas, that's like a three and a half hour drive. He started trying to solicit a threesome with me and his wife. I had seen his wife in the porno stuff he had sent me. I had never interacted with her. This pornography was not sexy nudes or people having sex. It's BDSM themed. It's him receiving anal sex from a woman wearing a dildo. It's not even one or two images to see if I'm interested. It's this swath of extreme sexual imagery. And this is back when you kind of still had to hunt and peck for internet porn or like pay a whole bunch of money. There's no porn hub at this point. <laughs> He's not really my type to start out with. And this is not my love language, porn and the offer of a drug-fueled orgy. I am married at this point. I'm in an unsupportive, abusive marriage with no boundaries. I wouldn't say we were exactly monogamous. I would describe myself as demisexual. Demisexual for me means I have to have an emotional connection. It doesn't always have to be a deep one, but I need something more just physical attraction to want to sleep with a person. I would also say that I'm pansexual. Your gender identity doesn't necessarily matter, though I'm very married now. So at this point, I told him to go fuck himself. That did not make me a friend. He started harassing me very badly. In 2007, I'm 26, 27. I found out from a webpage called Encyclopedia Dramatica that was created on LiveJournal. He had an entry on there. I knew that he was stalking the gentleman that I had initially met him through LiveJournal. I'm just going to refer to the gentleman that I met on LiveJournal as the gentleman. I also know that Jason harassed some other people. I didn't have any idea how many other people he had sent really graphic pornography. The gentleman was still one of the primary recipients and actually had a web page asking for any information on Jason. I decided to help. So I started collecting information from Jason and talking to him more. This is part of how I found out what his legal name was. 
he figured out that I was sharing information on him and turned on me really bad at this point and declared me one of his stalkers because he would tell me all the time he has like 40 or 50 stalkers. This is the point where Jason starts telling me he's going to destroy my life. I'm a horrible fat cow. There's some veiled death threats. So I call the Houston PD. I'm from West Texas originally. I was raised with the police are there for you. They're going to solve problems if you're in a bad situation. I had two different officers ask me why I didn't just stop using the internet. How can I stop using the internet? How do you even look for a job? The Houston police officer that took one of my reports was a woman, so I was hopeful that she would take me a little bit more seriously. I was also more comfortable talking to her because of what was going on. He actually started harassing me on Yahoo Instant Messenger, and she watched that. She took down all of my information, and this is where you should cue a laugh track, because even though he popped on Yahoo Messenger and started spewing his, I'm going to ruin your life bullshit right in front of the officer, she didn't even make a report. He emailed my graduate advisor for the program I was in, the head of the department, the dean, and several of the people on the staff from my school and accused me of committing a whole bunch of crimes, saying they shouldn't let me stay in the program. I never actually saw this email. They just kind of summed it up. There are no trackers associated with those emails. He never put anything like that in there because it could be traced back to him. My graduate advisor stresses for me to just not focus on this guy, focus on finishing. I did get my MFA in 2010. I then later went on to get a master's degree in fine art, studio art. I divorced. I've since met a very nice guy and have had a lot of therapy and tried to have a stable life. I was with my boyfriend, who is now my husband. We've been together for 16 years now. I'm fresh out of college. He's finishing up his bachelor's degree. He waited a while to go back to college. The economy is still not great after 2008. It took a while for jobs and stuff to really come back strong. Jason started his crap again and started making it clear that this was never going to end. He knows who's in my life now. They're going to get shit. Blah, 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 blah. And we both lost our jobs at the same time and decided to move up to Grand Rapids, Michigan to be with his family and try to get back on our feet. The economy was even worse there. And Jason sent me straight up death threats. He told me that he had committed murder before. He claims he put 20 shots in their head, and one of the people who dated him confirmed that he consistently talks about this. He told me he had a Mossberg with my name on it, which apparently is a kind of shotgun, and just a bunch of stuff. How I'm always going to be like a poor, fat piece of shit. It came at a really bad time. We were both honestly pretty suicidal at that point. Hearing all that stuff just made it worse. I tried reporting him to the Grand Rapids police. They would not even send out a police officer. The harassment had gone on so long and was so intense. I wouldn't hear out of him for six months to a year, and then it would be a slew of stuff over several months. I had made a Tumblr called Surviving Jason that documented a lot of what had gone on with myself, the gentleman, and other stalking victims. I used 
all of the names that I knew legally applied to him. Some of this was from another stalking victim who had hired a PI to look into where he was and what was going on. He did say at various points that my punishment is for not knowing when to shut up and that he had forgotten about me. Then I had to run my big fat mouth and remind him that I was alive. He gave this line to at least three other victims. Once it became clear that we were not going to get steady work up in Grand Rapids, we went back to Dallas where I had gone to undergrad and grown up from about 13 to my mid-20s. I had a decent friend base there, so there was more support. We both started doing better, got some decent jobs. That's when I really started solidly working in web marketing, which is still what I do. I was working for a law firm, doing some web stuff, also working as a legal secretary. Jason emailed every single lawyer and all of the partners at this firm and accused me of stalking him. He accused me of social security fraud. He did link back to the Tumblr and claimed that that was proof that I was stalking him and his wife. The lawyers did not understand this. They were not compassionate. One of my bosses flat out told me that if I valued my job, I would make it stop. I asked him how he thought that I could do that. And he said, call the police. The officer that took my report with the lawyers, he was very antagonistic. He was not friendly. He didn't want to talk to me. That detective had taken all of my information, shamed me for what he perceived as a sexual relationship that I had had with this guy. Never mind, there was absolutely no sexual relationship at any point. Not that I deserved this if there had been. I just see this as an extension of your skirt was too short. You showed a little too much cleavage. After the lawyers fired me, because Texas is a right-to-work state, he started going after my husband, who worked in another suburb of Dallas. Fortunately for my husband, the CEO of the company had also been stalked and was very sympathetic. The police took my husband seriously. They actually tried to pull IP information. They looked into some of the data in the email header. Part of why I feel like some of law enforcement didn't take us as seriously, because a lot of us are tattooed and pierced or have weird hair. My husband looked very business presentable, and I think that's also part of why he got taken a little more seriously. I'm kind of a squirrely punk chick. I'm not an ideal victim. Everybody tells me I look like I own a motorcycle. I'm perceived as tough and able to take care of my own shit. This is all very chaotic. Once again, I'm not hearing from him for months to a year. And then all of a sudden, it's several months of shenanigans. I actually handed the tumbler off to a victim that was supposed to be in the documentary, but then pulled out. It attracted a woman who is in the documentary named Rachel. Once her and I first met and started talking, we were friends. We talk all through this. She's been incredibly supportive, and I really cherish the friendship. She was added to a private group we have on a social media platform where we could talk about, oh, hey, Jason's being active now. 
because usually when he started heavy going after one of us, and there's a lot of people in this group. So people have come and gone because some of them would get freaked out and leave. There is so many personalities in there. Sometimes it's probably been me. I have made big mistakes during some of this and have not always been a gracious person. I'm sorry to those people that I was not a good advocate for. There's probably been around 40 to 45 people in and out of it. I'm thinking that's actually a percentage of his victims as well. Yeah. I know that this is a drop in the bucket. There's a lot of people that have never come forward. There are some people who know the other victims but don't want to be known. They would give the other victims a heads up. Hey, he's bothering me. Could you tell them that he's active again? And they would relay that anonymously. And then there's our spouses, our family members, really close friends, our coworkers. Because of the adoption, I haven't had that last name since I was like 11. I don't know if he ever really targeted any of my family members. They probably would have had no idea what was going on. He definitely went after my husband. He definitely went after my school. He definitely went after several workplaces. So when there's one victim, there's this whole tree of other people that are traumatized or affected. Around 2013, my own mental health issues, which are depression and anxiety, finally came to a head. I started getting really angry, and that finally sent me to therapy. That and medication are the best decisions I've ever made. It is 2014 that the really pivotal event happens. I initially met him in 2004. It really got bad around 2008. This has been going on for 10 years. At this point, I was working for a company that works in automotive. He had already emailed them. I had a cool as hell boss. When Jason emailed him, I was like, okay, this is what's going on. He's like, we're going to block him from the server. I'm not even going to engage with this. This isn't your fault. It's done. I'm like, this is the best response to this I've ever had. Thank you for being an advocate. I was so shocked. He didn't even ask me, how do you know this guy? That's the thing the cops and everybody else wanted to know was, how do you know him? And then the next question is, did you fuck him? My response would be, does it matter? I get a little upset about the victim blamey part of this because it doesn't matter. There is nothing I could have done that would justify this. I had gotten a series of emails from Jason that were photos of someone he was convinced is my current husband. This guy doesn't even sort of look like my current husband. The guy had apparently purchased a large number of fish he wrapped them in a box and shoved the box through Jason's mail slot and the fish had rotted there until the next morning. Jason had cameras on the house. That's how I saw the photos of this guy. The guy had also made flyers about Jason. He'd been sending me this. I forwarded it to the police. I don't hear anything out of the police. He's accusing me and my husband of having done that. There's no way I'm not going to drive two and a half hours to do this crap to this guy. I just assumed it was somebody local that he pissed off. Then one morning, I sit down and I log into my personal email. There's something about a car fire. He has sent me an email from Raymond Johnson. That name will be important later. And there's photos of a completely torched car. This car is never going to run again if it ran in the first place. 
and a little bit of burn damage to the siding on the house, but I would not call that significant damage. He's accusing me of having committed arson. I told my boss, it's within a month. It wasn't immediate, but this all happened over the course of October, November of that year. Arson is a serious crime. I'm not a vengeful person like that. I'm not a violent person, but I live within two and a half hours of him. So I'm just going to preemptively dip this in the bud because I don't want to have to drive to Austin to talk to the police. I don't want to have to go into a police department over this. I feel like if I'm forward and upfront and honest and give them whatever I need, this is going to be over. I knew that it was going to be the Austin fire people that investigate this. Eventually get routed to the fire marshal who is handling the investigation. Bless his heart. This is his last case before retirement. So I call him. I tell him about the email. I'm very upfront. I'm like, I have been playing a geocaching game all morning around the building of my work because I am a giant nerd. I will immediately sign over whatever you need to pull a subpoena and prove my cell data that I've been in Dallas this whole time. I also knew at this point he had sent it to my husband. I'm like, I'm willing to do the same thing for him. However, he does not play the same game, but I can account for his whereabouts. And he's just like, this is my last case. I'm done. I'm retired after this. I have been with the fire service for 35 years. You are on a list of about 45 people this gentleman gave me the name of. Most of these people don't even live in the state of Texas. I have had about a dozen phone calls so far just this morning about this incident. Hopefully something will come of it. Apparently, Jason had given him a fake name, even though that's not the name that was on the car. (laughs) And he was claiming ownership of the car which apparently didn't run. I'm going to look into it, but I am not confident this is going to get solved. I was like, okay, well, let me tell you about what this guy's been doing to me. And he kind of listens a little bit, and then he cuts me off. He's like, you are also not the only person that has told me this. I am going to forward this to our new cyber crimes department. I don't know if they will do anything, but I will give you the name of who receives the case. A couple of weeks later, I'm given the name Detective Spencer Chow. He reaches out. Unfortunately, because Jason is harassing me and I live in Dallas County and he is in Austin, which is Travis County, he can't help me, technically. But a long time ago, I had kind of become the keeper of the information. I built that Tumblr. I didn't make the social media group that we all talk through, but I'm one of the major contributors to it. So I'm like, yeah, I'll work with you. I gave him all of the information I had. I found out later, Austin Cybercrimes, they were primarily created to combat child porn. We presented them with the fact that there is internet crime going on that is beyond that. Spencer is very positive. He was very good about seeing that and recognizing that. He's a really cool guy. His parents, they named him after their favorite TV show, which was Spencer for Hire. I'm like, you were destined to be a detective. Since all this stuff happened with Jason, he actually is no longer with the Austin PD. He now does trauma yoga. 
which he explicitly reaches out to law enforcement that has been through trauma and teaches them how to move their bodies and let some of that go, but also works with victims and people who've experienced significant trauma in their lives and trying to heal. While I'm sad that the police are now missing such an amazing officer and the exact kind of person that more police departments should have, I feel emboldened and impressed with what a beautiful human being he continues to be. Even just being heard, seen, and validated by a member of the law enforcement went a long way, clearly. Yeah, he did not have to talk to me at all. I am not in his jurisdiction. He can't do anything for me. Now, who is in his jurisdiction and was also accused of the car fire is Rachel. She had a newborn at this point. The Austin PD showed up at her house to ask questions about the car fire, and she's got a little bitty baby. The person he is harassing in Los Angeles who is trying to actively get a protective order has forwarded all of the car bullshit to her detective, starts working with Spencer Chow. These two detectives come together. They have enough information to warrant a raid on this place. The day before this raid, the person who is in Los Angeles brags to Jason that he's going to get arrested tomorrow. They show up to raid the house and there's nobody there. We now know that he went back to Staten Island. It's hard because I got a really good example of why they don't tell victims necessarily everything that's going on because one of us did fuck up a bust. What happens is they don't know where he's gone. They can't go after him. Chow takes all of the documentation he has because he's harassing people in multiple states. Maybe the FBI can pursue this. He gives it to some FBI agents. I didn't know if they would take any of us seriously or not. I get a call from a FBI operative working in the Austin area. We have several conversations. I forwarded everything I have about Jason. Christmas Eve of 2015, I go down to the Dallas FBI offices and give testimony about the years of harassment. So they're taking us seriously, but we are one of the first instances for this level of cybercrime. They were flat out like, we don't know how we're going to actually get him, but we're going to do it. When I did the interview with the FBI on Christmas Eve, the woman who interviewed me worked for the FBI, but mostly as a victim's advocate. She told me, the one thing you need to know about the FBI is that they are glacier slow. But like a glacier, once they actually get where they're going, it's because they know they can grind it underfoot. This is going to take forever, but once we arrest him, it is going to be because we have a good, solid case. I created a web page at this point because we're trying to get him to not use something that masks his ISP and let slip where he actually lives. So I made a web page for the FBI on WordPress that was called Jason Stinks. And my husband emailed Jason the URL. And of course, that sets Jason off. He was so mad. The FBI had me put a proprietary code in the header of the WordPress that would send information apparently beyond what you normally can glean from 
just WordPress or Google Analytics to the FBI. This doesn't work, so the web page is quickly taken down. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. After she does that podcast, he walked back his guilty plea. One of the sentencing appearance things, his lawyer showed up to court. We had no idea this could happen. They don't call us to tell us this happens. It just pops up in the victim advocacy email and we're like, is he still under house arrest? And what does this mean? Is there going to be a trial? What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.